for mostly learning for one more session of pure brain bliss. Every week we explore together all the various different aspects of what makes our brain so unique but vulnerable at the same time. Last week we went microscopic and heard from a true stem cell pioneer, Professor Jack Price, how we reached the point of creating neurons and mini brains from any kind of cells like skin and blood and all the beauty but also risks that lie ahead. Yes, the future is promising, but we are not there yet. And I'm really curious to listen to what our next guest has to say about the future as he's heavily involved in shaping it. He started his journey in his motherland in Lebanon and followed his dreams to the other side of the ocean. With studies and training in Massachusetts and Florida, he decided to leave the sandy beaches of Miami and move back to the cold winters of Boston. Don't ask me why. I mean, I'm Greek and I moved to London, so guilty as charged. He's an assistant professor of neurology. His clinical and research focus is on movement disorders such as Parkinson's and Tourette's, focusing on incorporating technological advancements in clinical and everyday care. And this is exactly why he's here today, to talk to us about one such advancement, deep brain stimulation. Yes, yes, yes. We are going to talk about neurosurgery today. Braincast people, this is Dr. Wissam Deep. Wissam, welcome to Braincast. Thank you for this uh, very flattering presentation. <laughs> so Wissam, how far back in time does one need to go to find neurosurgical applications for neurological and psychiatric disorders? It is surprisingly you have to go back a, a really long time. Uh, people were interested about, it, it really depends how you define neurosurgical, uh, but in terms of, uh, let's say if we're thinking electrical stimulation to try to improve neurologic symptoms and psychiatric symptoms, the first evidence really is in the time of Romans, uh, Scribonius Largus, who is a famous uh, Roman physician, Used, used to use electric catfish to try to treat people's headaches, for example. Uh, and then we all know about trepanation, which is like goes back to prehistoric times. To, at that, so it depends really on how what you define as neurosurgery. But yes. we're considering like modern neurosurgery. Uh, we go back effectively to the beginning of the 20th century. At that time, there was interest in uh, trying to associate different parts of the brain with different function. And that was done either by direct cortical stimulation, which was a little bit later, so in the mid of the 20th century, or some resections. And uh, it can be a full lobe, lobectomies, or it could be partial, like a removing the codate and seeing the functions. Um, and then in the, around 1947, the technique of stereotactic surgery, which is trying to be capable of localizing uh, more accurately, uh, was developed. And then the first application of that was in 1954, uh, where there was a stereotactic surgery of the ventral intermediate nucleus for a person with Parkinson's disease tremor. Uh, so it really depends on how you want to define it, but human interest in playing with the brain and trying to stimulate it goes really, really far back. 
to be honest, you know, I'm not really sure what people were thinking when opening stalls to improve mental health. Though, to be honest, you know, maybe this is, you know, how people are going to look at us, you know, yeah. uh, in a few years' time. So, luckily, though, as you said, you know, things have progressed. Uh, and here we are with way more delicate techniques like deep brain stimulation. So, can you give us a mini tour? So, what is deep brain stimulation? Yeah, so deep brain stimulation, like the way I say it to my patients, first of all, is that. It's like a, a pacemaker for the brain. Uh, so, and that's effectively what it is right now. It is a device where you have a battery, an IPG, uh, that is implanted usually in the chest, connected by a connector under the skin into the, as, as its name says, it's a deep brain stimulation. So you have to create a small hole initially in the skull to introduce an electrode uh, into a deep structure of the brain. Now, depending on the indication, that structure would change. Um, and then uh, usually you will get a continuous, at this point, with the level of technology available for most, um, it will be a continuous level of stimulation. So the stimulation is the same, regardless of the state of the person, state of the disease, or time of day. Uh, and so effectively, this is the process. Once that's done, the person then follows with a neurologist or psychiatrist, depending on the indication, uh, to uh, modify the program, change the settings mm -hmm. so that the side effect benefit profile becomes favorable, and then the person gets the outcomes they were looking for. So okay, this so is effectively what DBS is, let's say. Fair enough. And so you stimulate the brain. So, so But what does it actually do to that specific part of the brain? Do you have any any more understanding about you know how it affects networks or neurotransmitters? Yeah, so interesting about the DBS is that it was started as an application, then we're looking back to see how it works, which is a little bit unusual for medicine. Usually you do the basic work first and then you try to apply it. DBS was the other way around. And then we still don't understand fully how DBS works. And it seems that it works differently uh, by different indication brain region and stimulation settings. But let's say if we're thinking about cognition, uh, how would uh, DBS work in cognition? There are multiple hypotheses. They are all supported by some level, varying levels though, of, um, um, of proof or evidence. Um, so for example, some of the possibilities is that it, it, they change synaptic function by effectively modifying long-term potentiation and depression. Uh, another option is neurogenesis. As we know, like the dentate gyrus uh, likes, has, has the capacity for neurogenesis. So stimulation in the area surrounding that, 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 that structure has been shown at mainly in animal studies that it can induce neurogenesis. Uh, there could be a specific stimulation of the acetylcholine uh, type 1 muscarinic receptors, which we don't have a medicine for right now, so a specific for them. So that could be one. The other one, which is now the most en vogue uh, hypothesis, is a circuit mo modification, which means that it affects the circuit function by either inducing a certain rhythm of, or oscillation of stimulation or modifying or blocking abnormal uh, signals. So there are multiple different hypotheses about how DBS can affect um, the brain. And then, as I said, it could be different by where we're stimulating. And so at this point, it's not very clear, but these are different hypotheses we, we, we think yeah, about. Amazing, amazing. And I mean, you know, although it is one of the, of the golden standards nowadays for treating Parkinson's, 
that can be controlled otherwise, of course. It seems that its applications have widened to include disorders as diverse as OCD, and, and you hinted towards dementia. So certainly, every time, by targeting different regions. So, so what is the evidence for deep brain stimulation improving cognition? So that, that evidence is uh, all over the place. So you have, and, and, and the reason for this is because you have, you don't have one target that is being studied. You have at least uh, seven targets and even more uh, targets that are being studied. And this is because uh, when we're thinking about cognition, we have to remember what are the anatomical correlates of cognition and then also the anatomical correlates of memory. So what do you mean by cognition? Is it only memory we're thinking about? What type of memory? Are we speaking about declarative memory or procedural memory? And what type of declarative memory and which stage of memory are we discussing? Are we speaking about the initial coding, the consolidation or the retrieval? So what stage uh, of, of the process? So that's why it is, I'm saying, all over the place. Uh, but let's say, for example, the hippocampus, which is like the, uh, the first or like the most known association between memory and uh, anatomical structure. If you try to stimulate directly into the hippocampus, most of the evidence shows that it's not very good. Uh, it can disrupt memory formation. But it seems that if you do a little bit a smarter way of stimulation, like a closed loop stimulation, where a stimulation where you know when you need to stimulate by getting a sensing signal, so you know what the brain is doing at the time, and try to time the stimulation to a certain signal, then it might be effective for so but that's again the evidence is coming at this point from smaller studies the two structures that have the biggest or the randomized clinical trials are the fornix of the dbs uh, fornix of the brain sorry and then also the other one is the uh, nucleus basalis of maynard which is one of the major uh, cholinergic centers in the forebrain so um, these are the two uh, structures that we have uh, uh, randomized studies. The evidence there varies a little bit between the different studies. Uh, it seems that there might be some benefit in some patients, uh, as well as improvement. Let's say if we look at the nucleus basalis of Maynard, there was improvement in the uh, scores on the uh, Alzheimer's disease assessment scores, for example. They, there was a decrease in the Fornix DBS, for example. There was an improvement in people who were older than 65, not people who were less than 65. Again, more evidence needs to be accumulated, but there is some hint that it could be beneficial. I mean, you're right, Wissam. You know, having published a review myself a couple of years ago, I was indeed struck by the heterogeneity of the trials. So who gets it? What are the optimal stimulation you know, parameters? But one of the big questions is, you know, when is the optimal time frame for someone to have deep brain stimulation. So Hardenak and Kuhn published the results of DBS targeting the nucleus basalis Maynard back in 2016, yes. suggesting that it is earlier in the disease progression and at an earlier age that you may get maximum effect. Although I think it would be extremely difficult to convince anyone in their 50s, for example, to have a neurosurgical operation to improve their memory down the line. So, so, so what's your view of that? When is the right time? So uh, uh, my, the, the, there's not a lot, as you mentioned, there's not a lot of empirical evidence right now to, to help us make that decision. So it is more uh, a personal opinion. Uh, and then uh, given that, so in my personal opinion is like looking at what 
the cognitive disorders are. So if we're thinking of Alzheimer's disease, um, these are neurodegenerative disorders. They tend to uh, get worse over time. And then also the structural changes that can happen with them tend to be more severe over time. And then, so that's why I tend to lean towards that it might be more beneficial, although we don't have evidence at this point that's really uh, robust, to consider this type of procedure early. And the reason I'm thinking about this is that if we think about other conditions, so if we think about some movement disorders, let's say if we think about some generalized dystonia disorders, um, we know the, it is beneficial to do the DBS early. So we're thinking here about some genetic childhood onset dystonia disorders. Um, also, although it is not clear yet, there is some minor hints that if doing DBS earlier in Parkinson's disease might be might be more beneficial. So there. There is some of the hints about these degenerative disorders or progressive disorders that maybe doing it early would be better. But then the other complication here is that how do you define these patients when they're very early? How to make sure that they have the disease specifically that you're thinking about? Uh, so there are a lot of other concerns when you when you move that way too. Yeah, I mean, since you mentioned Parkinson's, you know, in the latest movement disorders editorial by Alfonso Hassano, which is one of the leading figures in uh, DBS. He argues that there is still no compelling evidence that DBS influences the natural progression of Parkinson's. So is there any relevant evidence in dementia? So is DBS essentially changing the natural progression of dementia or not really? So I wouldn't say that there is evidence, but there are hints that it okay. might that it might change, it might. Uh, and then looking at, and they are indirect evidence, really, most of them. Uh, some of them I mentioned already, which is the neurogenesis, which may later change the course of the disease. In the nucleus basalis of Maynard study done by Kuneal in 2015, there might have been some uh, slowing down of the cognitive change, but is that really disease progression or symptomatic improvement? It's not very clear. Um, in studies using the Fornix DBS, for example, there is a volumetric change in the size of the hippocampus. And as we know, in people with Alzheimer's disease, the hippocampus shrinks or uh, degrades in size over time. And in a group, a subgroup of the patients who got the uh, Fornix DBS, some of them have an increase, had an increase in the size of the hippocampus and others had a stable size compared to Alzheimer's patients who only got medical therapy, none of them had any increase or stabilization in the size of the hippocampus. So that's why I'm saying there possibly is a hint that it might yeah. change disease progression, but we need, we need more work for that. I mean, we saw in a recent trial, you know, your team assessed, you know, deep brain stimulation, targeting the fornix to improve cognition in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And while the results in terms of cognition, I have to say, were not that encouraging, you did notice, though, something that I find fascinating. It was published at the New England Journal of Medicine, so it seems that it isn't just me that found it fascinating, but I don't want to spoil this for the listeners. So tell us, what did you notice? Yes, as you said, uh, Dr. Lazano and international colleagues did a, um, a randomized phase two study to look for Fornix DBS uh, effects in people with early Alzheimer's disease, with effectively mild stages of Alzheimer's disease. And as you said, the results in terms of the cognitive functions were not as encouraging as the earlier studies, but it showed that maybe people who are older than 65 got better, better results. But one interesting thing that was an acute manifestation is at the beginning, when the DBS was turned on early, on early and then being tested for side effects. So this is the first visit, which was done like two weeks after the surgery. Uh, around 50% of the people developed very vivid memory, 
recollections. Um, they seem to be memory. Uh, the study was not designed to look at these into a severe detail, but, uh, but they appear to be recollections. And some of them uh, were very detailed recollections. So they had uh, very spatiotemporal information, so where they were and, and then also when, when, when did the memory happen. And also some of them even had experiential uh, recollection. So they they could even remember the smell or the taste. So one person, for example, remember being on in Aruba, uh, in, in Aruba uh, and then drinking a martini and then remembering the taste of a sardine sandwich. So it's just like, it's very amazing to see this. And that memory was 20 years ago. So uh, it, it is very interesting to see this and also to see that as we increase the voltage, the clarity and the detail of that memory became more and more interesting. Uh, so for example, like at, let's say, at, and then the voltages required for these are higher than what you would usually expect for VBS. So at like seven volts, a person would remember like a very vague information. And then at 10 volts, they will have a full experience knowing the details, the smells. Uh, so it was very interesting, uh, very interesting to see this. Um, this is not the first report of such phenomena. It goes back really all the way back to the 50s uh, with uh, Penfield and Perot's experiments. Uh, and then in that case, though, it was peripheral cortical stimulation of the temporal lobe. Um, and then there has been some reports over the years, but, this, but they were usually in patients who have epilepsy or other indications. This is one uh, this is a, the biggest report really for people with Alzheimer's disease with a deep brain stimulation targets looking at that. Fascinating, fascinating. But let's make it a bit more clinical. Do, do you think that, you know, these findings, these observations, I mean, are there any implications, you know, for our understanding of how memory works or how we can help our patients? Yeah. So it doesn't seem that people who had those uh, phenomena did better or worse. Like they, there was no correlation between the people who had these phenomena and then their outcomes in the study. Uh, but the, uh, the information we can get from this can significantly help us improve our, uh, in terms of the function of our memory and the structures associated with the memory. And the group uh, the, by Dr. Lozano and, uh, and colleagues is going to, uh, has a paper that has been accept accepted in Alzheimer's and dementia that will look into the anatomical correlation and then functional correlation of the sites of stimulation and has some interesting findings. So hopefully that will be available online soon to look into that. But effectively, these types of studies will help us know more about how our um, brain functions in terms of recollection, uh, memory formation. And that will be not simply here for this Fornix study, but for all the other studies. So I, I would encourage all the other study groups to consider focusing a lot on these types of phenomena and then um, having a more like a structured interview to collect more information about them uh, and rather than simply collecting them as like a passing note, but having more detailed information because that will help more in understanding the brain that way. So we some now, you know, given that the, the cost of dementia, at least here in the UK, I don't know about the States, but I'm pretty sure it's, you know, something similar and even bigger given the size of the States. So the cost of dementia in the UK exceeds 26 billion per year. And people with dementia are forecasted to increase to over a million in the following years. And one would imagine that then, you know, it would be easy to set up a trial of, you know, basically anything 
you know, as people, you know, want to find, you know, want to find answers and, and want to find new treatments. But is it easy to set up a, a trial of deep brain stimulation? It's not always easy. Uh, it's not, most of the time, it's hard, and uh, and the reason for this, first of all, is, is there's so many reasons for this. First is first of all, you're setting a study for an invasive procedure, uh, so that usually makes your pool of people who might be uh, wanting to participate a bit smaller, just because of the higher possibility of complications compared to something else. Uh, the other thing is also defining your population. What do you want to include in the population, and that can be that can be difficult too, um, because let's say Alzheimer's disease, if we look at the pathology, we don't always have the same pathology, especially if you're considering about like, uh, uh, in terms of, is it pure amyloid, how much tau pathology, uh, and then uh, the, the differences in terms of the younger onset patients versus older onset with genetic mutations that might have a different, really different pathophysiology maybe of the disease. So trying to define your patient population and having the resources to be capable of defining this. So for example, having an amyloid scan, uh, doing the other studies that to help you to narrow it down, make, make selection of these patients to begin with more expensive. So sometimes it's also the expense uh, about this. The other thing is also the duration of these studies. These are chronic, slowly progressive disorders. Uh, so how long the study will go can also affect your success and your retention rate. And then that can also affect the capacity of you doing the studies uh, over time. Uh, and that's in addition to some ethical considerations uh, related to patient to this patient population specifically. So, so Wisdom, you know, so switching back to indications for deep brain stimulation, there has certainly been interest in its applications to psychiatric disorders, such as OCD, uh, depression, uh, but also most recently schizophrenia. So what is the evidence? So the, uh, the indication in the United States that in, uh, in the psychiatric disorders that has an FDA approval is OCD. Uh, OCD got the approval as a humanitarian device exemption approval uh, that, uh, in 2009. So it means that it is considered to be a less, a, 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 not a, 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 it's not a, the most common disorder, but at the same time, the impact of the condition is, is very high to get a humanitarian device exemption. So the requirements by the FDA are a little bit different. Um, and uh, at, uh, the target that is selected for OCD with, by, by this indication is the uh, ventral striatum and the, uh, 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 so that's the, that's the target selected. But there are multiple other targets that are being evaluated, including structures in, the, in other basal ganglia like the SDN, but also all over effectively different parts of the brain. And then many of them are also showing that if you look at the Y box, which is the scale that is commonly used to assess OCD severity and control, uh, uh, many of them achieve more than 30% improvement, which is what's considered to be clinically significant. Uh, if we're thinking about depression, uh, there was a meta-analysis of I think 193 or a little bit around that number of patients who were implanted in the uh, 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 in the brain, and then the uh, there was an improvement. Uh, in, in those in the, in the depression scales, but then when a randomized study was done over six months, uh, the benefit was, that was observed in these like in these uh, in the meta analysis mainly from open open end, uh, open label studies or case reports did not translate at the six month mark uh, for the depression study. 
Now, for other indications, like you mentioned, schizophrenia, but also there is also interest in DBS for anxiety, interest for DBS in eating disorders. Uh, there is interest in DBS for addiction. Uh, the evidence for most for the other conditions is remains a bit smaller, uh, but also being at this at this point, it is at the at the point of more excitement about the about a new application. So, uh, if we and this is something that is. Um, very much discussed in the DBS think tank that's held annually. Uh, there is a, a known curve about technologies is that early on when you start to use a technology, people are usually much more excited. Then you then you start noticing that doesn't work as well as you thought initially. Yeah. Your dreams are not as rosy. And then after that, you develop what we call like uh, uh, you, you go back to a certain more middle level uh, between the two. And then I, many of those psychiatric indications are still very early in the phase of excitement. Um, and then we'll see what further research will show us over time. Let's see. Let's see. I mean, you know, deep brain stimulation, you know, it is minimally invasive, but it's still a surgical procedure. And yeah. operation, as we all know, can be quite costly. So a few years back, uh, Farahani et al. performed a cost-effectiveness analysis of deep brain stimulation for Alzheimer's dementia. So the results suggest that deep brain stimulation requires a low rate of success, so 3%, to be as clinically effective as current treatments. And around, however, 80%, so much higher rate of success, to be also less costly. So given that it seems we haven't yet reached you know, these numbers of 80% effectiveness, it would be a hard sell to make deep brain stimulation a widely available option, right? And even if we did, given that it's so expensive, does it mean it would be only available to the rich? Yeah, that, that's unfortunately the, the state for multiple new innovations. Initially, especially if you cannot prove this large number, the significant cost benefits that you might get in terms of quality of life and then work hours uh, to, to compensate for the, for the societal price, let's say, of paying for those devices, it might be in many cases limited to people who can afford it. Um, and then what the goal of us in, in medicine is to see if we can show that a certain application will not simply cost, not simply save indirect costs, but also indirect long-term costs, including working. So at this point, with the level of evidence, it might be hard to sell the uh, to sell DBS for uh, dementia for regulatory agencies and paying agencies, and that will vary hugely between countries, as you know, the US is a very different system. Uh, but uh, at, at this level, yeah, it might be, and that's a unfortunate fact, is that it might be initially limited to people who can afford it. So let's go back to the people that is most relevant, the patients. Yeah. And indeed, you know, a vulnerable, vulnerable group of patients. Now, a few years back, Kim published the results of a survey of people that had deep brain stimulation for Parkinson's. Now, 50% of these people were reluctant to have the operation. So what are the attitudes of the patients toward the brain stimulation? And, and, and as you said, 50% were reluctant. So it, it, it varies a lot between person to person, but also I think the major at the, the it also relates to the education about what DBS is. Many people have either misrepresentation positive or negative of what DBS can and cannot do and what are the possible complications that can and cannot happen uh, with DBS. 
so in general, the, uh, um, uh, the uh, many patients I see in the clinic, for example, uh, I fall into two groups. Some people are very, very eager. They want they want every new technology. They want to, to, to get the DBS. Uh, and then they might be a little bit oblivious about the possible risks that might happen. And then on the other side, you have people who are very, very cautious. Uh, and then they really don't want any, any surgical intervention or any invasive procedure. And then even though they meet the criteria for getting deep brain stimulation, uh, they're, uh, they, they are quite reluctant. In this case, I think, me as a physician, that's my role in trying to educate both groups of people to try to show them that this is a another option and then what are its merits and what are its concerns and then what do we know right now about when it should be used. So Wisdom, you have been a member of the different Simulation Think Tank for some years now and yeah. it was only March this year that a big group of you published a paper in Frontiers. Yeah. So the last question. Can you allow us just a bit, just a sneak peek into the future of deep brain stimulation, please? Yeah. So, uh, so as you said, like the think tank is held annually, and they release a, a paper. Uh, the group releases a paper every year. Uh, the paper for this year's meeting that happened in September will be released hopefully soon too. Uh, and then, so usually it takes some time, but hopefully it will be released soon. Uh, but in in general, the major field of deep brain stimulation is going to to uh, uh, to a goal to be a little bit so that the stimulation is a bit smarter or what we call closed loop. Uh, so currently the devices are a little bit uh, automatic, are very automatic. You turn them on, you turn them off and uh, you have to go to the doctor to get the setting change and the changes are manual. And to find the uh, optimal setting, it is a, a, an iterative process. So it's like a, effectively a trial and error. You try here, you try there and see which works best and try to get to the target. So. Uh, the goal uh, of most of the research right now is to try to develop a smarter DBS, a DBS that can sense in addition to stimulate. So it will be, uh, but the, uh, one of the limitations is that what is the signal that needs to be sensed? Because in many indications, the signal is not very clear. But there is already a clinical application of this. So, for example, Medtronic in the United States has released their new battery that allows for Parkinson's disease tremor to be sensed and then stimulate it uh, um, uh, more, more smartly. So effectively, it will sense a certain component of the signal in the brain called the beta waves in the brain or a beta signal that can be used as a way to, uh, to stimulate the brain in a, smart, in a smart fashion. And the reason for this is, first of all, increase the longevity of the battery if you're not using as much resources, but also possibly decrease long-term complications and short-term complication of stimulation that's continuous. So it could be that some of the complications of DBS, some cognitive complication of DBS or walking complications of DBS could be related to this continuous stimulation and might be better with a smarter stimulation. And this is even more important in a complex condition like memory disorder, uh, where you might want to stimulate differently in different stages of memory formation, uh, and that could be also make a huge difference in what you'd expect from patients. Braincast people, Dr. Wissam Deep, amazing stuff, amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Wissam. But I'm afraid, I'm afraid that we will have to leave Boston and travel back to England, jump on the train to Oxford and enter the world of precision psychiatry. What is that you would say? Well, you know, join me next Monday and you'll find out as with us will be Professor Andrea Cipriani that there is no way, there's no way 
you've been practicing psychiatry without having bound even by chance onto one of his papers. Until then, postpone and break us for more learning over and out. Thank you.